You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Mark Miscavige, who is using Django and Python to power the Lionel.com site, which is one of the largest model train sites around. Mark, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting us know a little bit more about Lionel.com? Sure. Uh, yeah, so I'm Mark Miscavige. Uh, I've been a backend developer for, uh, I don't know, uh, 10 or so, 10, 12 years now. And when I worked at Lionel, I worked for a, a digital advertising agency here in Los Angeles, um, where I did probably 100 different Django sites. But I kind of picked out the Lionel in particular one just because it was something that I remembered a lot about. Um, but I think it's a good kind of base case for a lot of a lot of things, a lot of a good jumping off point um, to talk about rather than talking about like, oh, it's this weird, quirky, really specific thing that no other no one else is going to have to solve the same problem type of thing. Uh, the Lionel site is is kind of just that that base case where then you can you can get there and then, all right, now I'm going to tweak this or tweak that or change this and, and get into your weird stuff. But I have a whole pile of projects I could potentially talk about and I'm sure I'll, I'll reference some other things at some point. Right. And maybe just to set the stage here for a second about some of those other sites that you worked on. I mean, you worked on the site that powered the movie Avatar site, Hunger Games site, and some other like Oprah Winfrey stuff that got like crazy amounts of concurrent views, right? Yeah, those ones are definitely bigger traffic ones. Uh, yeah, the Oprah Bold Words game and the Beyblades. I forget what the app is called in the App Store, but it's, it, I think it's the main Beyblades app. Both those backends uh, were set up in Django and uh, the app backends are, are pretty straightforward. They're just collecting some JSON blobs. Um, but those do just absolute boatloads of traffic um, in the, you know, tens and twenties, thousands of people uh, a week. Um, and then some of the other sites, uh, you know, different, yeah, lots of big brand names. Uh, I did sites for uh, the Hunger Games when it was popular and the new Avatar movies, if they ever come out, done uh, things for Netflix, uh, their like brand and PR site that's still up, lots of things for ESPN and uh things like that. I, I'm sure there's dozens more that each one trigger. You, know, you, you have to say the right thing to trigger the right memory. Yeah, lots, lots of those did, uh, you know, a ton more traffic and are, like I was saying before, they're just very specific use cases in a lot of cases. Um, like the Hunger Games site was mostly a social aggregator, but we built a lot of gamification in uh, and that was doing maybe you know, 30,000 uniques a, a week. Uh, and people all around the world posting things and it becomes a content management nightmare where you're uh, managing people's posts and trying to take down offensive things and, and, and things like that. Right. But now just to tie this back into the site we're going to be talking about today, the Lionel site. I mean, did most of those sites that you just talked about, did they all kind of use the same like CMS platform or some type of backend that you wrote? Uh, yeah, so when I worked at uh, this previous agency, uh, it was it was called Red Interactive. Uh, it no longer exists anymore. But uh, so we we built our own CMS platform uh, from the ground up. There, uh, it's it's very much based on the Django admin, um, but we added a, a bunch of new features and new front end to make it kind of more user friendly and things like that. What we added, uh, it's called Scarlet. Um, it adds. Like I said, very similar to Django admin, but adds um, the ability to schedule things um, so you can you know, hit publish on something and not have it go live on your website until the future. Um, you can version things so you can work on something, save it, roll back, you know, look at that timeline of all your saves and who changed what. And then you can also use that to version and group and publish things together. Um, so maybe you have lots of foreign keys on a on some kind of object that all get associated onto one page on the website. Um, kind of in one or two clicks, you can version all those things together so they all go live at the same time, or they all bust the cache um, for the correct page or the correct pages uh, at the right time. Um, which means we also have kind of a, a robust caching framework um, that's it's pretty open ended. 
in terms of caching, um, but it lets us do things like that where we can uh, group things together and have the relevant things bust each other's caches um, to try to make that as optimal as possible. And then we also have our own asset management system built into Scarlet um, that manages file uploads and mostly images uh, for a lot of the sites. So you can, there's a built-in cropper and you can resize and, uh, and then you associate those assets. And we do a little bit of funky stuff to make sure those things get uploaded to the, the CDN correctly. And you can reference different image sizes and, and things like that, just with the changing URL, and not um, jump around the database, hitting like five foreign keys to get an image or anything like that. Um, it's all normalized and uh, optimized for that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, pretty much all those sites that we did at, uh, at Red Interactive use Scarlet as the backend. Um, and we're still kind of using it to this day. I kind of took over the open source repo for it. Uh, and now where I'm working now, um, it's potentially coming back to life uh, to, to reuse it for some new stuff. So Nice. So maybe one thing we can talk a little bit about today would be like, you know, if someone were to build a site kind of similar to Lionel, maybe, you know, they'll end up using Scarlet as the base of that application. Is that kind of how that would work or no? Uh, you would still use Python Django, uh, and then you would swap in instead of uh, using the Django admin, which you would put in like your urls.py and, and install that app and whatnot. You would install the Scarlet app. Uh, into your Django project, um, and then you would import it in your, your URLs and add it where you want all these Scarlet URLs to work from and have your CMS live. Um, and then instead of, again, similar to Django admin, instead of building an admin.py file for all your apps inside the Django project, um, we call them CMS bundles. So you make your CMS bundle.py uh, inside your app, uh, and then build it out that way, um, you know, associating it with your models. And then we, again, have some more flexibility where you can nest admin pages under other admin pages, um, and you can do blank bundles, um, to potentially just load in your own, uh, template or your own set of HTML or something like that. Like maybe you have some weird piece of content that you need managed, um, that's not just kind of some text fields or an image upload, um, something more complex, like say dragging things around a map, you know, we ha have that flexibility inside Scarlet to say like, all right, I'm going into this object. I'm going into this page. Now I'm dropping in this weird content I need to manage. And on the back end, that's really just an open-ended template for you to then drop in your own JavaScript, your own CSS and work just like that with Django forms to manage that content. We'll save it to the database and then repurpose it for the front end. How, you know, however that might, you might do that in a Django app, whether that's through your views or uh, class-based views and whether you're responding with JSON or populating a template or, you know, anything in between there. Okay. Let's, uh, let's circle back though a little bit more about the Lionel site here and maybe we'll just go forward from there. So how long has the site been up and running for? Uh, I think it's been up since around 2015, 2016. Okay. So a couple of years now. That's that's pretty cool. But they've been around for a little bit longer than that or no? They've been around for uh, quite a long time. Uh, I think way back into the early 1900s. Yeah, because that's one of those names, right? It's one of those names where it's like, I don't know exactly what they're about, but I've heard it like a thousand times in my lifetime. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, they're pretty much the name in model trains. Um, and the people who get really into model trains obviously know Lionel and, uh, they have a huge, just an absolutely massive range of things they sell currently. And as you get into their backlog, um, which we did for this marketing site for Lionel.com, uh, we actually imported basically their entire backlog into the site. So every product they've ever had has a page in the site if you can find it. And there's like literally hundreds of thousands of different trains and SKUs and cars and this and that. Um, there's, yeah, just an absolutely massive catalog. Wow. So how many people ended up working on this project? Like getting this site up and running? Um, getting the site up and running, uh, 
it was primarily myself doing the back end. Um, and then I believe there was one or two people who worked on the front end of the site. Um, and then another small support team of, uh, project manager UX, uh, right. So I did go to their site a little bit before this call and I noticed there is that like quote unquote marketing type of site. And then there was like a separate link to go to like an e-commerce store. Is this Django app, both of those combined, or is it just one of them or the other? Uh, uh no. So the store side is its own separate e-commerce platform. I didn't, uh, interact with that uh, very much, although the way the two sites are linked is that um, the Lionel.com site, which we would refer to as the marketing site, um, pulls all its products in from the store. Um, so there's actually two product models in the back end, one for uh, legacy products that I pulled in from that old catalog that I just mentioned of hundreds of thousands of old products. Um, and then the active products that get pulled in from the e-commerce site. So that way the marketing site stays up to date and the Lionel client, uh, they only have to go to one place to manage products. They can go to their e-commerce site, they can add their new products and, uh, it, it just runs on a cron job and, uh, and updates that, uh, that list of products every night. Um, so they can go into the e-commerce site, add their new products and and then have them show up in the admin side of things for the marketing site the next day. Um, and then that lets them, um, they're not really tweaking fields there. Uh, they would do that on the e-commerce side of things. Um, but then there's some extra fields that only exist on the marketing side of things, whether it be, you know, big, giant, beautiful promo images, um, or sometimes they upload, uh, things like sounds or, uh, video, um, or they can also go in there and make, you know, make something maybe like a featured product uh, or have it get pulled into the homepage because it's, you know, it's Christmas time and they want the Christmas train on the front of the homepage or, or things like that. Um, so that's the, that's kind of how they use the product side of things of, of the .com admin. Okay. Yeah, that seems like a good idea if you're dealing with, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of products. There's no way you want to keep that in sync yourself like, right. in two different places. Yeah. So is that uh, shop something you've built also in Django or is that something else? The e-commerce side? Oh, no. The e-com the e is a uh, Magento site, uh, the last I had checked. Um, but oh, okay. other than interacting with the Magento API to, to pull in the products, actually, now that I think about it, we don't interact with the Magento API. The, the client automatically dumps a, uh, a CSV every night to S3 uh, and then we check that S3 bucket with a cron job. And if the file's there, then we upload the new products that we see. We do kind of a, a diff and and uh, create an update uh, in Django to update all the products on the marketing side of things. Interesting. Yeah, we'll definitely get into the details of that one. But let's say, you know, that store site, I mean, maybe it existed before the marketing site. I'm not really too sure. But you mentioned using Magento there. What motivated you to use Django to build the marketing site instead of just kind of throwing up a static site or even using Magento for that? Sure. Um, yeah, the, the Magento site uh, existed prior to the, the .com or prior to this iteration of the .com. Previously, the .com was, uh, I think it was some kind of PHP nightmare. Uh, we ultimately used Django because that was our primary tool of choice uh, at Red Interactive at the time. Um, we were primarily working with Python Django uh, on all our sites, unless the problem dictated something else. Um, that was pretty cut and dry. I had already built a dozen or two uh, Django sites up to that point. So, you know, that, that decision was kind of already made. <laughs> It's like, well, the agency built 100 Django sites. I've built 20 of them. Probably going to rewrite it in Django or write it from scratch in Django. Exactly. And at that point, we already had Scarlet. So that was sort of part of the pitch was that we, we have this bigger, better CMS that we can offer to you um, that gives you the flexibility to do the things you need, whether that's pulling things in from, from Magento or doing some of the other quirky things that are, are happening in that admin. Right. So is this marketing site like one 
big monolithic app or is it a couple microservices or is it somewhere in between using like Django apps maybe in a monolith? Uh, no, it is a monolith. Um, it's uh, a single repo. It's all deployed all at once. Uh, it lives on a few. Uh, it's all, it's all uh, hosted on AWS. Um, so it's hosted on a few EC2 instances um, and and using RDS and Elasticache. Um, and then there's a couple EC2 instances that are there kind of for support. Um, so I believe there's there's a few EC2 instances that are purely app servers for the for you know, serving the Django side of the site. Um, and then there's a few EC2 instances that have that same application code base, which is the Python Django code base. Um, but there's basically just a flag there that says, hey, you're not an app server, you're a support server. And those support servers um, do things like host the admin. Um, so that admin is completely separate uh, from the .com side of things. You can't actually get to the admin without kind of knowing where to go, if going to the right places and whatnot. Uh, and then it manages, there's, uh, I'm sorry, there's another one that manages all the cron jobs um, to pull things in from Magento and some of the other uh, timed things that need to happen. Uh, and then there is a single server, I believe, that is running Solar that is doing all the search for the site. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm actually glad that you brought that up about Solar because search, I would imagine, yeah, if, you're, if you have many, many, many thousands of products, it's probably pretty important to do really good search with that. So I was going to ask you, like, you know, what database do you use for that? Uh, but now we know. Yeah, we we went with Solar. It's, it's using uh, Django Haystack uh, and Solar as the actual service powering that on the back end. Uh, and we actually, we, I had done, we had done some things with solar before, but nothing too complex. Um, this site is actually our most complicated solar implementation that Red has ever done that I've ever done. Uh, we actually, I did one or two iterations of it, trying to get it where the client wanted it to be in terms of, uh, you know, a lot of weird search specific things like fuzzy matches and uh, you know, words that swap out for other words or misspellings or, you know, having the most related things when you type something weird in that search box. Um, it's kind of a difficult problem to solve. And Solar has those things solved, but you have to know the right uh, levers and switches to tweak. Um, so after doing one or two iterations and trying to get it where, where Lionel wanted it to be, and not getting it there, um, we actually brought in a uh, contractor or a, um, yeah, a contractor uh, who basically gave me s some support. Uh, he, he built Home Depot.com search, um, which is really complicated. Um, so he was b basically able to tell me, like, to eke out of Lionel uh, what they wanted the search to be able to do and then translate that to me uh, into terms of solar to what to go in and say, okay, tweak this, change this, use this config for this, put this here, and kind of getting it to where it is now, um, which is pretty robust. Wow, that's amazing. So this guy, the contractor for Home Depot, then he was, I guess, a solar, like, I guess solar is what they use in Home Depot as well? Uh, it, it was at the time. Uh, I believe it still is based on the last time I was on Home Depot's website, because I kind of know all the weird quirks and things you can play with on that site now to uh, get what you want. Uh, but I think, yeah, he was primarily like, he is a solar expert. That's what he does. Right. So did you guys look at like other alternatives to that before you chose solar, like Elasticsearch or maybe even rigging something up with like Postgres or something like that? Uh, we went directly to solar. Uh, we, we've had done um, some other sites in the past that use solar as the engine. Um, I had done one other one that used a different uh, backend service that I can't remember the name of. Um, but solar is the most robust of all of those. Uh, so we had a lot of the configuration elements in place to get solar up and running in terms of uh, having the the kind of configuration files, being able to deploy it uh, effectively and know that it stays up and runs and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, so 
that's why we went with solar. Um, and then we kind of just, as we were you know, hitting the wall in terms of solving the problem that needed to be solved, um, went out and got some help to, to really figure out how to use solar. Right. Yeah. That makes total sense. I mean, I love the idea though, right. That you can just kind of like ring that bell and then get someone who you can hire to help you out on almost any problem possible. I feel like that is one of the really, really, really big benefits of using, you know, technologies that people actually know about, right? It's not super hard to find really knowledgeable people. Yeah, exactly. Just knowing when to ask for help. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about your backend and, you know, we'll go into maybe a little bit more about your tech stack. Maybe let's talk about the front end a little bit. So is this application mainly like server render templates with sprinkles of JavaScript or is it like an API backend with some JavaScript heavy front end? Um, so this is primarily rendering Django templates. It wasn't quite as popular as something now like a React where it's completely headless and you're just serving uh, API responses and then the front end is ingesting those API responses. This was a little bit before that time. I've done many sites that, that work like that. Um, but this one is the front end is done completely in Ember, um, which was the JavaScript framework of the month at that point. But it's it is being it is rendering Django templates, and then the Ember and the CSS, uh, I think it's SAS, um, are compiled on the back end and and served, and they're they're taking over the templates from there. Um, one weird thing about the JavaScript and CSS on this site, um, it kind of serves two different purposes. In the admin of the site, the Lionel basically still employs a webmaster. Um, so he knows enough to be dangerous, but not enough to manage the backend coding side of the site. Um, so there's actually elements in the admin where he can go in and inject JavaScript or CSS onto any page of the site. Um, and that works for any page you're going to normally click through to on Lionel.com. Uh, there's also a pile of just kind of one-off marketing sites that they have, whether that's for like a contest or some promotion that they're doing. It's, it's just kind of a one-off URL that will live off the .com domain. Um, and he can go into our admin and add his CSS and JavaScript and link those to those one-off pages and have that. Um, so that way he can kind of manage all that via the .com CMS without having to SSH into a server and edit a file or anything like that. Right. It's funny you bring up the term like webmasters. And so now I'm curious <laughs> if you can actually email like webmaster at Lionel.com and you can speak to him. <laughs> Don't do it, guys, if, if you're listening. Uh, it, <laughs> you might be able to. I'm not sure. Yeah. So I haven't really worked that much with Django, but I know it has the idea of like, what is it, that static collect command to kind of just like pre-compile your static files? Mm-hmm. Uh, are you using any tools in combination with that, like Webpack or, or no? Uh, I believe Webpack is is on this site. Um, but ultimately, yeah, it's it's going to collect all your static files and then we're going to push them up at deploy time. Uh, and those are going to live, they're going to live on every application server. And then the CDN is going to sit in front of those URLs uh, and things are actually going to get served from there. The CDN will hit the application servers, and then the, the end users will only ever get the CDN version of the static files. Right. And then that uh, collect static command, that handles doing things like MD5 digesting the files, so they have a unique name if they change? Uh, yeah. Okay. And I guess for the CDN setup, I mean, do you have it set up then where it's like a pull-based CDN, so the CDN will get the files from your web server once and then serve it instead of you pushing directly to the CDN? Correct. Yeah, there, it's it's basically sitting in front of the application servers, um, and then as certain URLs are hit, it will hit the application servers and get that. And we have it set up to just respect our headers on those files. Um, so as caches need to be busted or anything like that, we can just do that on those files, and the CDN will update as necessary. Right. As for that CDN, are you using like Cloudflare or AWS's CloudFront or something else? Uh, it's CloudFront. Everything's in. S3 and CloudFront and, or the application servers themselves. Okay. Now, for the application itself, you know, we're kind of talking about that front end a little bit here. Are there any 
like interesting like soft real-time things that need to happen that might happen over WebSockets or is this basically just like create indexable pages that Google can search for and people can see? Uh, yeah, it's primarily that. There's there's no uh, WebSockets on this site, fortunately. Okay. So maybe now we can just like switch gears a little bit and talk more about your tech stack. So you mentioned you have Solar. Like, are you using Postgres for some other SQL data? You're running Celery and Redis, Docker, anything like that? Uh, yeah, so it's uh, everything's running on Postgres. Uh, we run a master-slave setup. Uh, that all runs in AWS as RDS instances of Postgres, um, and they configure the master-slave for you. Um, and then we also use ElastiCache uh, Redis to cache pages of the site on the back end. Um, and cache some other uh, small things like asset URLs and things like that. Okay. Oh, sorry. You're going to say something. There's a, a load balancer, a elastic load balancer, and all the DNS and all that stuff is, is managed through AWS as well. Okay. So if you just have your Django app and then you have uh, the load balancer in front of that, are you not using anything like Nginx in between? Um, all the application servers are running Nginx and Gunicorn. Uh, and, then, and then the elastic load balancer uh, load balances to the application servers, to Nginx, to Gunicorn, to Django. Right. So did you do any research when it came to picking Gunicorn, Gunicorn, however you want to pronounce it, versus UWSGI or any other app service or Python? Um, I don't particularly remember our reasoning at the time. Uh, but again, it was another uh, kind of institutional technology. We already had all the uh, deployments and kind of preset configuration files set up for Nginx Gunicorn. Um, so that's what we went with. Right. Totally makes sense. Like I'm a huge fan of that library too. I, I use it in all of my production apps. And, I mean, it's amazing because you can just like basically drop two or three or five lines of configuration in maybe an environment variable or two for, for like the concurrency and worker stuff. And you're off to the races. Like it's not super complicated to set it up. Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny to try to, you know, think back on those things because we, you know, we've kind of put in the time at the time to say like, all right, we're picking Nginx for these reasons. We're picking Gunicorn for these reasons. Let's script our deployments out and script out those configuration files where you go back and you tweak these one or two or three things. And you really don't need to think about those decisions too much when you're, when you're setting up one of these sites and when you're, you know, working for someone where you're setting up hundreds of these sites, uh, you know, over the years, you know, you don't want to spend time on those decisions every time you need to spin up a site. It's, Go with these things. They already work. The configuration files are there. You bang, 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 and you've got a site. Yeah, definitely. If you're at that scale where you're making so many sites, like automation is super critical. I mean, heck, I remember like after the first time I deployed my first Flask app, it was like the second time I went to do something else, it was, I already went to automate it at that point. Because, <laughs> yeah, you don't want to do that stuff many, many times. Exactly. I get bored after twice. <laughs> now, going back to your AWS setup, uh, is there actually a managed AWS service for Solar or no? Uh, no, it's it's just running on an EC2 instance uh, and deployed. Uh, I mean, I wrote the deployment uh, for for that uh, to run on an EC2 instance. We opted not to use. Um, I don't remember if there was a like a clo or a uh, an image of a Solar instance that you could just get for free, or if you had to purchase it from Apache. Ultimately, I just set it up myself. And I remember that being a big hassle, uh, getting all these server configurations right for Tomcat and Solar. So everything was up and working as intended. Um, with it being automated, once you figure it out once, you're, you're kind of good to go. Right. And just maybe to be explicit here, I mean, do you write your data to Postgres and then it gets copied over and synced to Solar? Or are you using Solar as like the single source of truth for all of that search data? Uh, it gets copied over to Solar. Uh, Postgres is the single source of truth. Um, and Django Haystack um, is the package that manages that transition. You define things uh, basically for Haystack. And then as you save something or delete or update, it saves it to Postgres and then Haystack takes care of that transition to Solar. Right. Yeah, I'm not too familiar with Haystack. I mean, I've heard the name. I know it's probably one of Django's most popular tools for that. I mean, maybe under the hood, it uses something like like database triggers on the Postgres side. Is that how that works? Or yeah, I I, I believe that's that's how it works. It's yeah. Right. 
I'm super interested to talk a little bit about your AWS setup because you mentioned that you do have a couple of these web servers running and you have, you know, that Amazon load balancer sitting in front of it. I mean, that kind of makes me think like you're responsible for load balancing your servers like manually. Is that what's going on or something else? Um, we're responsible for, for scaling horizontally, but not load balancing, um, if that makes sense. Um, so the load balancer is going to take care of the actual load to the application servers and distributing that accordingly and maybe dropping an application server if, if it's not responding or something like that, um, at which point we would get alerted to those things. Um, but it does not have any sort of auto scaling in place um, in terms of scaling horizontally for load. That's um, something that we considered, um, but with cost always being a factor, it's not necessarily something that Lionel wanted to take on. They're more comfortable with, hey, we put this up. Again, Lionel is kind of a good base case for a lot of the sites that I've done. Um, so it's a, a good example of like, we know we load tested the heck out of this setup. We know where the bottlenecks are. We know about how much uh, traffic this could handle. And it's nowhere close to what Lionel gets um, unless they invent some new crazy product, they're not going to need to scale horizontally. So they, they don't have any use for Elastic Beanstalk or any of the other scaling options that AWS provides. Yeah, we didn't really get a chance to talk about their traffic. Are you allowed to share kind of like give or take what type of traffic they get? Uh, I don't really know. I don't have access to uh, the servers anymore or to, to any Google Analytics or anything. Um, I'm guessing it's on the scale of you know, a thousand uniques a week, you know, a couple hundred uh, people a day, thousands of page views a day. But Right. So it's not like mega scale, but, you know, people are going, going to the site. Sorry, the, the pages are cached, like, incredibly heavily. So in a lot of cases, a request is not even hitting an application server or a, uh, a database or a, uh, a Redis or anything like that. It's just getting stopped right at the CDN. And you're not really getting farther than that. Interesting. So you're actually caching the full response from the Django server, not just your assets. Correct. How do you have that set up? Is there like a specific Python library for that? Or is that like sort of something that Django has batteries included for? Um, that's something that Scarlet has batteries included for. Um, so that's, we, we can do that because Scarlet can effectively bust those catches when they need to, when someone goes into the admin and updates content or the cron jobs update content, the correct pages get busted and the CDN gets updated. Interesting. So I guess from like the end user's point of view, the webmaster's point of view, if he's going or she's going into the admin, is there just like a checkbox, like cache this uh, page or whatever that they can enable or disable? Uh, no, uh, all the pages are cached. Uh, it's just based on uh, Scarlet has its own like signals or triggers built in um, for saves and uh, publishes. Um, so things will get published. Uh, things will get busted when it's saved. If there's no publishing on that particular object, or if there's publishing, it will only get busted when something gets published. Right. Isn't it crazy though? How big of a difference that can make? It's like, if you do a full response that's cached and you get, I don't know, whatever, two visitors an hour, that's fine. But if you get like 5,000 people in the span of like 10 seconds or something, having that cache just even if you just cache the page for like five seconds or something, yeah, makes such a big difference in the amount of load that your Django app needs to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's crazy because I remember doing this a similar thing on a different app and it was just like night and day. You know, you flip the switch and it goes from like the server is like, oh, to wow, I'm not even doing anything. But uh, going back to your app though, about the load balance setup. I mean, if you have a couple of web servers running, the load balancer is really doing like the dirty work of, you know, keeping things in and out of the load balancer. But you still need to be responsible for deploying your new version of the app to all those separate servers. And then how do you take care of like taking one or two of them down at a, t at a time instead of all of them, like restarting the G-Unicorn server? Right. Um, so another thing that we uh, developed at Red um, was our own deployment framework. Um, it's an open source project. It's called Red Fab Deploy. It's built on top of Fabric, um, which is now a defunct package. Um, Fabric is effectively a just a way to run commands or run SSH commands. 
wherever you need to run them. So that's basically how our deployments were configured. Um, so it would package things locally and then rsync those packaged files up to all the application servers. Uh, on the application servers, we would keep five old copies of the project of the last deploys. Um, so basically the servers or the folder structure on the servers was serve active and the active was a symlink to the latest deployment folder, um, which is just a git hash, uh, you know, the short git hash. So that way, if, if you deployed something and something went like massively wrong, you just change the symlink to the late, the previous folder and restart uh, Nginx and Gunicorn and the site is back up. But then on a successful deployment, we put that new folder there. We change the symlink to active, restart Gunicorn, and you effectively have no downtime if there was no problem with your application. Um, and then we also had um, different flags built in, so you could you could deploy the code to the server but not restart Gunicorn. Um, so you could um, trigger a migration of the database or something like that. Some other like job you needed to run on the server to to get things up to date, uh, and then you could manually restart Gunicorn uh, or restart from our our fab deploy framework. Right. So those manual restarts and things like that is that just running like some type of fab command or did you build like a web UI for all of this? Uh, no, it's, it's all from the command line. So you would just run, you would run fab deploy dev server or you would run fab restart dev server or things like that. Very cool. Yeah, I, I really like the idea that you create these like deploy artifacts that you are sync over, right? It, I feel like that is such a nice way to do it versus uh, just live running, you know, like a pip install on your production server at the time you deploy your app. Because, right, there's so many millions of ways that things can go wrong there. So when it, when it came to coming up with that strategy, was that something that you just figured out over time? Like, this is a little bit nicer than just pip installing live on the server? Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that was of great importance to us was uptime. And, you know, when we do deploys because we were we were doing a lot of rapid iteration and we did, you know, do a ton of deploys. You know, we don't want the site to go down. We want all our developers to be able to deploy at the drop of a hat. Um, so that was really important. Um, ultimately the, the downside to fab deploy was, um, it, it was a little bit slow because you would hit everything would happen in order. So you'd deploy to one app server and then the next one and then the next one and then the next one. Um, so if you were running, a site with a lot of app servers um, or things like that, you would have to sit for maybe, you know, five minutes while deployment happened um, while a smaller site, you know, the deployment time really, you know, scaled with the complexity of the site in that, in those cases. Um, right. So it was doing like a, like a linear yes. deploy, I guess. Okay. So let's actually talk a little bit about your deploy process in a second. I just want to go back to those web server EC2 instances, and maybe we can talk a little bit about, uh, which operating system are you using then? Uh, the EC2 instances are running Ubuntu, uh, whatever the latest was at the time. It was probably 14. And then everything else was a managed service. Right, like RDS and Elasticash? Yeah. Do you recall maybe the hardware specs of those servers? Um, they were probably, I, I forget the AWS terminology at this point. They were probably mediums, uh, what, T2 medium or something like that was the, the ones at the time. Right, so like a couple gigs of RAM, maybe two CPU cores, like whatever that happens to be. Yeah, they're pretty middle of the road. They're not uh, too too heavy. The only thing that's running on those servers is Nginx Gunicorn. Right. Uh, I don't know if you mentioned this. No, I don't think so. But were you using Celery as well for some background jobs or no? Uh, no, no Celery. There was just one dedicated uh, EC2 instance that had maybe 10 cron jobs set up on it that would run those things there any anything that was a cron job was a python management command the the code was there it gets treated just like an app server it's just not load balanced to and then the cron takes care of uh running those management commands at the right time right so given all of your experience of you know deploying so many django apps did you end up also developing some way to like provision servers automatically like using some configuration management tools like ansible maybe um, we actually built all that into RedFab Deploy as well. Um, so we could uh, provision EC2 instances. Uh, 
it was a pretty minimal setup at the time. Uh, and most of what we were doing was EC2 instances. Um, but it was, it was more sort of the paradigm was more EC2 instances, but we need to work on different providers. Um, so it had the ability to provision EC2 instances or the equivalent of an EC2 instance on AWS, on Joyent, on Azure. There's one more, but I can't remember what it is. Um, GCP, maybe? Uh, no, it wasn't Google. It was... Um, I know DigitalOcean. I've used DigitalOcean, uh, and it actually just... Well, it doesn't provision servers on there, but FabDeploy will deploy to anything because it's our sync. Uh, it, was, it was another one that I don't remember it because I didn't like it. <laughs> I don't remember what it okay. was. But we, we didn't really take that farther than being able to provision some EC2 instances, which basically in our common setups that let us scale horizontally at the run of a command if we needed. And because we use FabDeploy to do the initial configuration of these servers in terms of you would run Fab, init a server, and it would install all the the right Python and install your pit packages and it would install uh, PsychoPG and Pillow and, and things like that that it needed at the you know uh, app get level. And then we didn't really need it to instantiate any of the managed services. So we didn't really take it that far in terms of having Fab uh, set up RDS and Elasticash and things like that. Yeah I, yeah, I was just going to follow up. Like, did you have this thing set up security groups and roles and all the other things like S3 buckets? No, uh, pretty much all that stuff we would do manually. We would uh, go in and, and manually configure those things. Right. Maybe just to rewind back to the rsync setup. So, okay. So it sounds like you're not zipping one file up and then just always rsyncing a different gigantic zip file up. What exactly is getting rsynced over? And are you dealing with things like virtual environments on the server? Uh, yeah, we did use virtual environments on the server. Uh, there would be one virtual environment that was set up on server instantiation, uh, and then that virtual environment would get used in perpetuity, uh, and things would just get pip installed to that. At, you know, if something was added, um, what was actually R synced up to the server was uh, locally. We would do a build into just a a separate folder, a dot build folder, and that would put everything that needed to go to the server in that folder in the right places. Uh, and then it would rsync that folder up uh, and it wouldn't necessarily zip it um, because rsync will do a diff. So it, it knows to only sync up the files that have changed, make those changes and and then copy over the rest of the files where they needed to be and then restart. Right, so that build command, it would produce even as far as having all of your pip dependencies there, like every file, every library that's needed? No, though that just lived on the server and it would, it, you know, it would run a pip install when you did a deploy, um, you know, pip install your requirements file. But if the requirements didn't change. So did you guys end up looking at Docker at some point, maybe for uh, either development or deployment? Uh, yeah, ultimately, we did migrate to Docker. And now I'm actually working with uh, some of the same people that I worked with at Red. Um, and now we're more in in that world where everything is Dockerized, and we're we're running things on Kubernetes, and um, kind of playing in that environment now. So that's kind of what this has evolved into. Mm. So what you're saying is basically, you need to come on again and talk about one of the sites that's uh, using that setup, because that would be a totally different uh, category of things to talk about. Yeah, completely different category, completely different. Uh, we're using pretty much all uh, Google Cloud platform stuff now and all hey 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 don't spoil it for next time <laughs> we'll we'll get into that one due time due time but uh actually let's go over maybe what your deploy process looks like today so let's say you're deploying some code or developing some code and you want to get up and running in production like what does that workflow look like um for lionel or you're talking like literally right now what i'm working for on? lionel if you wanted to deploy new code um you would anywhere i've worked we've enforced git flow um, so you would you would make a feature branch and you would get it approved and you would merge it in, and um, then we would typically deploy to the dev server first, um, which is just a fab command. So it would be fab deploy branch dev server or branch develop dev server, and it would push the develop branch up to the dev server. Um, we would manually check things. Uh, we had manual QA at that point that would check a site. Uh, and if things looked good there, 
all you would do was fab deploy branch master production and things would go to the production application servers. Uh, and then, like I said, there was there's some flags you can do there if you want to not actually restart Gunicorn. So you could run a migration or run some kind of batch update. Um, you would pause it and uh, either run something as a fab command, like fab migrate DB, um, or if it was something else that there wasn't a fab command for, you would just SSH to one of the application servers, um, run that command, and then you could run fab restart. Okay. Now, all of these fab commands, are they running like directly on your dev box or some build box, or do you have them running off of like the result of a CI server? Um, they were just running off our local developer instances. So all of our backend developers um, would manage their own deployments. And so, yeah, that would just run on your local machine. Um, we weren't running any sort of automated CI or anything like that at the time. Um, so it was, it was pretty much a, you know, a one-man show for any particular site. Right. Did you ever run into a situation maybe where like two or three developers were trying to deploy uh, a version of their app at the same time? No, in the case where we had uh, multiple backend developers working on a site, um, we would designate one person as the lead and that person would be the person who was allowed to deploy to production. Anyone was able to deploy to the dev server, um, which their things are kind of allowed to get a little funky um, where someone might deploy a branch that's not developed to test something out in which case you're overriding each other's things. Um, but in a lot of cases, we were sitting in the same room, sitting three feet from each other uh, and could say like, hey, what the heck happened? Oh, I just deployed, my bad, like that kind of thing. Right. So for all the developers working on this site then, were they responsible for installing things like you know, Solar and Postgres and Redis all locally on their machine? Um, if you were... Working on that piece of the site, yes, um, which like those kind of things become a little bit of a hassle for like a front-end developer who might be running you know, the, the Django app locally um, to then test the templates and, and work on the front-end. Um, but we would code in the fallbacks. So like if you weren't working on Solar and needed it running on your dev machine, it would fall back to uh, Haystack because Haystack normalizes the interaction with those search frameworks, um, you would be able to switch it to something that was really easy to install and have it just work. I, in fact, I think Haystack just has a um, a like test fallback, which just uses Postgres search. Um, so you could just set that in your, your local Django settings, um, which we would keep in the repo, and that would be your local settings, and you wouldn't have to worry about setting up solar or things like that. Right. Nice. Yeah, that's, that doesn't sound too bad. Now, when it comes to deploying maybe to that dev server, uh, were your developers also running like a local test suite beforehand? Uh, like automated tests, PyTest or something? Yeah, we would we would set up uh, some amount of local kind of unit tests uh, for the, the project. Depending on how things went and depending on the client, um, those are more for us than something the client mandated. Um, so we would do kind of the minimal amount of tests to do some sort of sanity. Uh, and then it was more up to the developer, whether basically every developer was on call for their sites. So if you wanted to be woken up at three o'clock in the morning, then you could do that to fix something or you could write tests. It kind of depended developer to developer, whether you wanted to kind of go the accountability approach or like heavy testing approach. So how many developers were like, you know what? I really want to be woken up at 3.18 a.m. <laughs> and didn't write any tests. Uh, I mean, most people weren't. I was more in that camp. Uh, I was more uh, like, I trust what I wrote. And if something goes wrong, like, yes, absolutely call me at any point in the day and I'll fix it. Um, but that's just how I worked um, at the time. Okay. What about like incidents that may have happened? Did that ever happen where you, you got woken up? For something that went wrong? Um, not for Lionel, uh, for other things, absolutely. Uh, it was never really, like, anytime something like that went wrong, it was never really a kind of Python Django type thing that went wrong. Um, because we did have a, like, we had a dedicated QA team and things were getting manually tested um, quite a lot over the course of the development. Um, so things like that wouldn't necessarily show up. Um, but 
you would run into weird cases where there was a DNS issue or some sites have really weird rerouting and hosting and lots of weird things like that or weird interactions with CDNs um, that those kind of things I remember being awake for some long hours to fix, especially when you're working on marketing sites um, where a fair amount of stuff we did was tied to like a launch of something. So it's like, nope, this has to be done and like working tonight. There's no postponing that during a campaign for a week. So maybe talking a little bit about disaster recovery and unexpected events, like how did you deal with things like database backup or also backing up maybe any user-generated files? Um, there were no user-generated files other than um, what was uploaded through the admin. Uh, anything uploaded through the admin would go directly to S3 uh, and we would sort of trust S3 to keep track of those things. And then the databases, uh, we let RDS manage those backups. Uh, it would run automated backups. Uh, I forget what it's probably set at every day or every couple hours um, to back up the databases. And it had master-slave set up. So if master did go down, you could fail over to slave and bring up a new slave. Right. What about things like maybe error reporting? Like if some 500 happened, did somebody get emailed? Or like what else did you use for logging the metrics? Uh, there's definitely Sentry set up on the site. Um, so we would get Sentry alerts uh, for 500 errors or things like that. Uh, otherwise, the there was no log aggregation. The logs would just live on the application servers. Um, and if you got a Sentry error, you could go and SSH to the server and check it out. Yeah. Yeah, I like that idea because it's like, you know, when's the last time you really just go there and, and take a look at all of your logs across all of your servers? Like, you don't just do that every day for the heck of it. It's usually to react to something like an error. Right. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not like a huge fan of going all out to have a fancy, like, logging front end. I mean, it's nice to have, but it's one of those things where it's like, you know, unless I really, really have a large scale app, I'm probably not going to reach for that. Do you feel the same way or no? Yeah, definitely. Uh, like, the only time I've had kind of that log aggregation was for um, more of a microservice setup. Um, or like a Kubernetes type setup where I'm not SSHing into a server. You know, I just want to look at the logs all collected in one place, that kind of thing. Right. So going back to maybe like alarms and notifications and stuff like that, did you have any of uh, AWS's like CloudWatch alarms set up or no? Uh, yeah, we would have typically set that up stuff, set that up by hand, um, but we would have set up things like uh, CPU alerts for all the application servers, uh, CPU and... Uh, memory alerts for databases and caches. Um, and those would just manually send us emails and send Lionel emails. Um, if things crossed the threshold, that would basically be, hey, is this actually a problem? Do I need to wake up and fix something? Um, or sometimes CPU will spike and, and go down and everything is fine. Right. Did you have any other maybe like higher level alerting, like checking like a health endpoint to see if it gets a status code 200? Uh, yeah, I believe the load balancers require that. Uh, so we would typically just hit, uh, um, I know I would, I don't know what we would have done at this point in time. I know in the more near past, uh, I've set up a specific health check endpoint, um, that does kind of a minimal subset of things to make sure that everything's up and running. Um, at, for Lionel, it might just be hitting the homepage, uh, unless there's some kind of easier page to hit easier in terms of hitting the database or, you know, causing any sort of meaningful load because those health checks get fired every whatever it is, 20 seconds or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm a big fan of having some type of health check like that. Yeah. Definitely helps. Yeah. Sometimes it's weird. It's like, I don't know, maybe a while back, a couple of years ago, I would go for the super minimal health check, right? It's like not even like sending a, um, a body back to the response, like just ahead of a 200, like the most minimal work. But lately I've been going, uh, making a database connection and just doing like a select one right. just to make sure sanity check, make sure the database is still accessible. It seems to come in handy. So uh, before we get into maybe going over some best tips and lessons learned, um, maybe we can talk a little bit about secret management because I don't think we really went over that. Like how do you deal with secret keys not being shared? Um, we took a, uh, I, I guess what I, I would say at this point is kind of a unique approach at the time, um, which is not necessarily innovative. Yeah, so we hosted our own uh, Atlassian stack on-premises, which included Bitbucket for Git repos. 
Um, so it was kind of our view that we were hosting those and our IT team was managing the security on those. So we basically kept our secrets and things like that right in the repo um, and kind of right where they needed to be. Um, so we didn't do any kind of extra security or extra fanciness in that uh, aspect. Right. So I guess with a setup like that, all the developers who have, you know, read access or commit access to the repo, you trust them very, very well, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then did you do any type of like uh, code reviews and things like that? Like if someone were to make a PR, you'd have all the developers take a look? Uh, yeah, it wasn't a hard requirement necessarily that all, you know, all or one of the developers would take a look. Um, a little bit would depend on seniority of the person working on it. Um, so the senior developers would keep the other senior developers in check in a lot of cases. Uh, and then uh, a more junior or mid-level developer would definitely get stuff checked before it got pushed to uh, production. Um, but we, we played a little fast and loose in, in terms of that type of stuff. Right. Then I guess you also have, you know, the QA system in place where if someone were to do something really crazy, right? Like echoing out your database credentials to the homepage, like something like that would probably get caught by a human being. Yeah. I, we would always push to a dev server first and things get checked there by a lot of people, not just QA. Um, our producers would do gut checks and, uh, UX people and designers are looking there and front end people are working off dev server. Um, so something like something as egregious as that would get caught um, somewhere along the way. Right. Yeah. I just wanted to bring that up because like, you know, sometimes you think like, oh, wow, committing crazy secrets to GitHub, like sometimes it's okay. Or not, you know, not GitHub specifically, but any type of uh, Git backend. Yeah. I would never commit them to a non self-hosted Git. Um, but in that case, that seemed sane enough that these things aren't really leaving the premises. So yeah. So what would you say are some of your best tips and lessons learned from building this app? Just as the app in general, I, I think, it, like I, I kind of said at the very beginning, it's a good base case for a lot of things. It was a, it's pretty straightforward. There's not too much craziness happening. So that's where a lot of our sites, a lot of Django sites start from. It's, you know, two application servers, a database, uh, cache, an admin, um, a few pages that are hosting, you know, a, a number of different objects and things like that. And then uh, the craziness kind of spawns out from there. So I think having that is a good, uh, a good thing to have in your toolkit to know, especially when you're working for clients or things like that. Um, and you need to give an estimate, uh, you know that, all right, my base case takes this long. And then I'm going to do this crazy thing and this crazy thing. And that's all I really need to worry about estimating or really need to worry about thinking about. So I, I think having something like that is a, is a really good practice. I actually really like that idea of, of having like that base case that you can always just uh, get a good estimate from because I happen to do a lot of freelance work and I know, you know, some listeners out there are probably free freelancers as well. And, you know, estimating a, a complex project is, is one of the hardest things to do and, and actually be accurate about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I've done a ton of estimates <laughs> over the years and yeah like i said having that base case to go off of and then like the way i would typically do that uh is to like i, I sit and kind of write down my file structure of what i think is going to happen for a project and i basically estimate out each file uh and the time required that the models are going to take me this long and the views are going to take me this long and the admin's going to take me this long and that's one app and you know copy, paste, repeat for each app that you think you're going to need. Uh, and that's how I kind of break down estimates for those for a Django app. That's a great tip. Now, maybe on the flip side of best tips and lessons learned, do you recall any mistakes that you've made in the app that you kind of fixed over time? Um, I mean, the most obvious one is that solar thing. And that's kind of a tip I've, I've given a lot of more junior developers that I've managed over the years is, is developing that skill of knowing when to ask for help and knowing when you're you're stuck and you're spinning your wheels or you're in over your head and being able to say like, all right, like I, I give right now. Like I know I can figure this out if you gave me a lot more time, but now I'm wasting time and I need some help. However, you're going to get that, whether that's another developer on your team or you need to go and, and hire someone or, or find the expert in that domain. Um, knowing when to, to, to stop and ask for help is, is, is a, skill to develop yeah absolutely and if it's not just asking someone specifically like 
at the very least, don't be afraid to, you know, post on a message board or a chat room or something like that. There's a lot of uh, really great people in the Python community who are, I'm sure they'll help out. And that goes with any tech stack, really. Yeah, whatever resources you have available, um, whether it be, you know, yeah, just posting the Stack Overflow or a, a GitHub issue or, or anything like that. Um, those are the places to start when you're you're kind of freelancing and you're by yourself. Um, but if you have you know team right there that you can ping or a senior developer that's helping you out, um, asking them as well. Yeah, for sure. So Mark, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thanks for having me. It was it was great talking with you. Yeah. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Um, if you want to check out the Scarlet CMS, uh, you can go to GitHub and uh, I believe just search for Scarlet. Uh, it would be under my name repo, uh, so Mark Miscavige. Um, uh, Red Fab Deploy should also be there if if that's interesting to you. Although uh, I don't know that I'd recommend it at this point in time. Uh, there's probably better things out there. Um, otherwise, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Chicken Dinner with uh, threes instead of e's. Chicken Dinner with threes instead of e's. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.